And Michal Mordechai wasn't here today to give me a ride from my house. So, um, or, and, and it would take him a little longer to, to, bring, to pick me up from there. Okay, we are um, uh, in learning this for bringing from Tavshin Chavtes. Um, and uh, let's go to um, page, uh, in, in Varmachos, it's on page uh, Yud Beis, Eisvav. The theme of Parsha Shaftim has a direct relationship to the theme of, of the month of Elul. The month of Elul is a time when Hashem accepts our tshuva. Unlike the first, uh, the second set of 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu was on the mountain, uh, where it says that Hashem was in a, in a so to speak, with, tell the Jewish people in, in disfavor. From the first of El and on, when Meisham invited Meisham Benu to come up the mountain on that Thursday, in the first of El, and to stay there until the Monday of Yom Kippur, that those forty days are time are a time when Hashem forgave the Jewish people, and uh, it's be, ready from the first day as we learned yesterday. There is already this 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 uh, this flavor of happiness and joy and mercy. And every year on this day we have this again. This, this, this Hashem forgives us with joy and accepts our tshuva. So this has relationship to Parsha Shaftim. How so? In the whole theme of the book of Dvarim is tshuva. Sheela Dvarim. Oh, you're not looking inside. Kaldor outside. Fine. No problem. Ela Dvarim. In the book of Dvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu uh, relates to the Jewish people. A lot of rebuke, uh, all the places that they've angered Hashem, in order to inspire them to do tshuva. What's unique about this parsha is not that it's about tshuva. The whole book of Dvarim is about doing tshuva. Is about tshuva with simcha, tshuva with joy, tshuva that's accepted. In other sections of, of Parshas Dvarim, Hashem tells us to do stuff. For example, Hashem tells us, place upon yourself a king. When you tell someone to do stuff, they could do this with joy or without joy. Doing doesn't necessarily mean that you want to do it. But when um, we talk about giving, giving is something that you give, a presence is always given with a good eye. So the opening verse of this historical portion is, I, you should I, give upon your gates judges and police officers. It's not something that, that you should do, it's something that should be a gift for you. Having judges, having police officers on all of your gates is something that's a gift. Primarily, the translation of the word doing in Judaism means to be coerced. Like it says in the Beis Yosef, in certain situations, the Jewish court coerces people to give tzedakah. However, the, the language of nesina means that we're talking about a gift. Anyone who gives, the Talmud says, let's say someone sells you a house. So you don't know if they included various things in that sale. The Talmud discusses what, what's considered obvious as part of the sale. What's well, not considered obvious as part of the sale. But when they give you a gift of the house, 
Then they also meant the pool and the, and, and the back house and the garage. And because when you give a gift, you give it a good eye. The meaning of a good eye means excessive. When, something, when someone gives someone a gift, they, they don't just give the bare minimum, they give with, with a full heart. And therefore they give more. So too, when it says in the Torah, you should have judges and police officers upon your gates, which we learned that's the meaning of tshuva. Why is judges and police officers about tshuva? Judges means that you judge all your gates, your seeing, your hearing, your thoughts, uh, your words. Uh, you put judges upon your gates. You, you, you evoke your inner parent and say, this isn't okay. You get angry at Sahara and you say, this isn't okay, and, and, and you, um, you get taken control. You have a judge. And police officers, we learned, are about um, consequences. Let's say your inner parent gets, raises its voice at your inner child and says, you need to get up for chassidus today. And your inner child says, I don't want to get up for chassidus today. So then you have to arouse your police officer and say, we well, you know what's going to happen if you don't come to chassidus today. That's the, and, and so that's what the Gemara says, if the Yitzhahara is not um, resisting your, uh, is, is resisting your voice, remind him about the day of death. That's the police officer. So Hashem tells us, I want to give you judges, I want to give you police officers, which means that it's not just something that you should be doing, it's something that you should be doing with joy. It's, it should be something that you should be doing as if it's a present you want to give Hashem. And when you do something as a gift to Hashem, you do this all the way. So that's the unique, um, that's the connection between the, this parasha and the theme of the month of El. El is about the king in the field. Not just doing tshuva, doing tshuva with the king smiling at you. You're smiling back. The, the theme of the month of El is tshuva with simcha. So therefore, it's, it's also the uh, indicated in the beginning of Parsha Shevetim, you should have a gift of police officers, you should have a gift of judges upon your gates. There's another way that Parsha Shaftim has a connection to the month of El. The meaning of ju- judges is justice, judgment. Thank you. When we take care of whatever judgment has to happen here, then there's no reason for Hashem to take the matter into His hands. There's no judgment in heaven. And since there is no judgment in heaven, so all the guards at the door are taken away. And you're able to go right over to the king. There's a famous nigan that spells Zayda. You know there's a nigan. The father is alone in the forest. Where are my children gone? Hashem is, so to speak, alone, asking us to come home. And we tell Hashem, we want to come to you, Dad, but there's a guard at the door. Who's the guard at the door? Guard at the door is Yitzhahara. And the accusing angels in heaven. And they say to the Abishur that, uh, don't let him in. And the Yitzhahara doesn't, doesn't have a ceasefire. He has his gun to your head 24-7. So, so there's a purpose of Yitzhahara. That's why God created it, even though Hashem regrets creating it. Even though there's something negative about it as well. But uh, on, in the month of Elul, since the Torah tells us to take the justice into our hands, to put guards on our door, to put judges on our gates, so then by us putting judges on our gates and policemen at our gates, that makes it unnecessary for Hashem to, 
to uh, put judges on our gates in heaven. In other words, since we're taking care of business and we're uh, judging ourselves where we need to be, so there's no reason for there to be anyone stopping us. In other words, when you decide that you're going to, ju- to judge yourself and, and, and take um, and use your, the Shulchan Arach and, and, and carefully examine your actions and see where things have to be, so then that takes away the, the accusatory angels in heaven which, which say, you don't belong here. You're not allowed to come to the king. You're not allowed to in, into the palace. The month of El is about the king being in the field. So by us t- taking care of the, the justice that has to be done in ourselves, that takes away all the, the guards at Hashem's door and lets us come in. V'hineh. Second line. This idea of placing judges and police officers upon your gates is not just something you have to do for yourself, it's something you have to do for other people as well. As the Torah says, you should put judges and police officers in all of your gates. All your gates doesn't just mean your own, it means all the Jewish people's gates. You, you should worry about what's happening in someone else's house. And the goal is that Hashem should have a home in this lowest realm. And therefore, it's not sufficient for you just to make sure that you're doing okay, but you should also, another Jew is struggling, you have to help them evoke their police officer and their judge on their gates. It says about Yaakov. Yaakov was challenged when he fought against Lavan and he fought against Esau and when he fought against the angel. And finally the Torah says after all of this, Yaakov comes home whole. Yaakov comes home complete. And the Talmud explains how was he complete. He was complete in his body. He wasn't hurt by Esau or the Malach of Esau. He was complete in his soul. He didn't learn from the ways of Lavan. Complete in his Torah. He was able to learn Torah despite all the challenges that he had. He was totally complete. So when a Yid makes an effort to put the judges and police officers on his gates, so then he's successful and he's able to be victorious not only in himself, but also in his area in the world that God has placed him. And he's whole, not just in his body and his soul, but also in and his Torah, but also in his money. <laughs> Yaakov elevated all the sparks you need to elevate, and therefore he's also complete in his money, which contains the godly sparks that he had to elevate in the house of Lavan through uh, taking all of the wealth of Lavan. It says in the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, they, they left Mitzrayim with everything in it. They left Mitzrayim like a, a uh, silo without grain, like a fish pond without fish. Why do we need two analogies to describe how we clean them out? So Kabbalah says, says that the grain is something which is above the ground, something you could see with your eyes. That represents the sparks of holiness which are coming from Alma Desgalia, 
from a lower world, from a world where, uh, from a world where there is a sense of self, where there is a sense of of uh, separation from Hashem, where it's not like fish, which are always in their source. A fish being in its source, being in the water, and to the extent that you look at the water, you don't see the water, you don't see the fish, you just see the water. The representation of that spiritually is an angel or a soul. In the world of Bria, which the world of Bria is described as Afsharis Matsyas. It's not, doesn't, it's not considered an existence, it's considered the possibility for existence, because you can't really quantify the kind of existence in the world of Bria, because it's always in a state, every, all the creatures, all the souls and angels in the world of Bria are always in a state of Dveikos Tashem, always in a state of attachment to their source. So you don't, when you, when you are in the world of Bria, you feel more your godly source than you feel yourself. That's the meaning of a hidden world. Hidden world means that the fact that there is a world, it's hidden. A revealed world means that the fact that there's a world is, is revealed. You feel the, the separate entity besides the Eivishter. So, in Mitzrayim, there were different kinds of sparks there. There were sparks in the world of, of the grain, so to, so to speak, kinds of sparks. And there were sparks from the fish pond kind of sparks. So, we left Egypt. We, not only did we take all the grain kind of sparks, the sparks in the revealed world, but also from the fish pond, meaning also the sparks which are coming from a world where you feel more the source of your life than you feel your life itself. You feel more that there's water than you feel that there are fish. We, when we left Mitzrayim, we took all the, those sparks as well. The Rebbe Hashab was once eating a fish, and, he's, and, and uh, there was a bone stuck in his teeth. And uh, he said, uh, he, the soul which is in the fish... That doesn't want to be elevated yet. That's why he's uh, getting stuck in his teeth. So, so uh, fish in general represent not just uh, divine sparks from a hidden world, but the language over here is Mitsuda, a Mitsulis Yam, the deepest part of the ocean. That means we're talking about the highest kinds of godly energy that was in Egypt, and the Jews left Mitzrayim, they took also the fish off, also the highest sparks. That's why it's customary to eat fish on Sudesh Lishis, on the third meal of Shabbos, Shal Shudis, because uh, some souls of Tzadikim, they're Gilgal, they are, they are, their reincarnation is specifically in fish. Again, because fish represent this revelation, of this, this, this reality of the hidden world where all you feel is the source. So, just like when we left Mitzrayim, we took all the sparks out, the higher sparks, the lower sparks, so it was all taken out. And therefore, when the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, they took everything out with them. All of their belongings came out with them, and all the Egyptians' belongings came out with them. As it says in the Torah, they came out with their silver and with their gold. And that's also what's going to happen when Mashiach will come. Mashiach will come, Hashem will again give us the judges and again give us give us the advisors, uh, as we had before when the Bismindish was standing. And we'll actually be able to put judges and police officers in all of our gates. Every shevet, every tribe will have their, these judges, including the 13th gate. The 13th gate 
uh, is a part of Mashiach. Mashiach will have his own ownership of the land of Israel. It says in the Sefer Yecheskel. So Mashiach will come, it will be a complete redemption. All the sparks of Kedusha will, will be taken out of Mitzrayim, out of the world, and therefore we're going to leave, leave this exile with great wealth. Okay, I want to um, uh, do the next part of the Febrengen uh, outside. Uh, this, that was the end of the third sikh. This is the fourth sikh of this Febrengen. Regarding judges, which is the name of this week's parsha, there are different levels. There are some things which one judge is sufficient for. There are some things you need to have three judges. There are some things you need to have 23 judges. And there are some things you need to have 71 judges, which is the great Sanhedrin. A judge is also called a king. Just like it says, just like it says about a king, that a king leads the Jewish people where they need to go. And therefore, the, a king is supposed to be someone who has fear of heaven because he has to lead the Jewish people according to Torah. Like it says about David HaMelech, that uh, David HaMelech would discuss Torah with Yoav, his general, and uh, the reason why Yoav was successful in war was because David was, was learning Torah. And David HaMelech would spend time every day uh, answering questions of women. Women would come and bring to him their uh, bedika cloths, and he would check their bedika cloths to see if they were allowed to uh, be permissible to their husband. He was the rav. He was the rabbi. So he was wasn't just involved in, in in purifying women to be allowing them to return to their husbands. He also was interested. Thereby, he also caused the Jewish people to reunite with the husband of the Jewish people, meaning Hashem. And that's the reason why a king has to always have a sefer Torah with him, as it says in Postkim, he has to have a personal sefer Torah. The reason why he has to have a physical Torah is because Torah is supposed to be by the king, not just something in his thought and speech, like other great uh, rabbis in the, our history who've never stopped saying words of Torah. So they had Torah all the time, like a rabbi, it says, they never stopped saying words of Torah. By the king, he has to also have a physical Sefer Torah, a Sefer Torah written on a parchment. And since the king is also a, a judge, so in Parsha Shaftim, we have the commandment of having a king, which is a biblical commandment. So when a king, the Indian of a king, when you have the Indian of a king in a, f- a full revelation, in a perfect revelation, then there is a victory over the entire world, not just, and we're talking about the way it's meant to be according to Torah. When there is a full revelation of the monarch according to the way it is according to Torah, so not only is there the dominion of the king over the world, but it's also his dominion is through peace. As it was by King Solomon. About Shoma Melchotorah says, he sat on the chair of God. The Talmud says, there was a, just like God is, is the king of the higher realms, King Solomon sat on God's chair. And in King Solomon's time, it says the moon was always full. So he was a man of peace. His name was Shlomo. There was peace in his days. And people from other countries came to him with gifts. But in other times when the monarch, the Indian of the king, of the, of the monarchy of the Jewish people wasn't fully revealed, there was need for wars to make it happen. So that's the second job of a king, not just to lead the Jewish people. The second job of a king is to make wars. So right after the mitzvah of appointing a king, in this Torah portion, we have the, war, the law of war. The Torah says not to be afraid of, not to be afraid of uh, your enemies. 
So this is connected to what the Rebbe was discussing in 1969 at length, that a Jew is not allowed to be afraid of a non-Jew. And if a Jew is afraid of a non-Jew, he empowers the non-Jew. Like it says in the Talmud about the, um, the, the court cases that are done, um, that whenever you have a court case, you have to go to a Jewish court, not to go to a non-Jewish court. Even if the non-Jewish court has the same rules as the Jewish court, you have to go specifically to a Jewish court because you're not supposed to place the... the, the you're not supposed to be afraid of a non-Jew. You're, not supposed to, you're supposed to take care of all of your, uh, your life with, with the Jewish court. Anyone who leaves the Jewish court and goes to a non-Jewish court says the Talmud he denies God. He, denies it, he first begins denies God. Then he will deny Torah. And further... There's no reason for a Jew to be afraid of a non-Jew. Because the Talmud says the Jewish people are the most chutzpah nation. We are the most, we're the most brazen nation. So even when you're in a scenario where it makes sense to be afraid of non-Jews, and therefore you don't have to tell us that we're brazen unless there's a reason to be afraid. So even when there's a reason it would seem that you, that you should be afraid, the Torah says that Jews are brazen, how much more so if the Torah says, when you're going out to war, don't be afraid of the non-Jews, how much more so should you not be afraid? The Torah tells you specifically not to be afraid. In general, a Jew shouldn't be afraid of a non-Jew. How much more so if God himself is telling you, don't be afraid. But practically, the Rebbe says, we see that people are afraid of non-Jews. Even if there's no reason to be afraid, Jews are afraid of non-Jews. And the question is, why are they so afraid? Jews are the most chutzpah nation, the most brazen nation. Why, do they, why are they frightened of the non-Jews? The answer is, that it says that a neshama, it says that one of the reasons you're allowed to leave a war, and you're allowed to say that I'm not going to fight in the wars, but is if you're afraid of something. What are you afraid of? You're afraid of the various that you've done. So just like it says that a Jew may not go out of battle because he's a, he, could, he could become afraid because of his avaris, so when your neshama is afraid of avaris, when, when a person's done, made, made mistakes, that causes Neshama to be afraid, frightened because of the things he's done wrong, that trickles down into his psychology in his mind and he becomes afraid of non-Jews. His Neshama's fear of Averis, because of the mistakes a person has made, in other words, the mistakes that we made cause us to, to, to be frightened of a non-Jew. Like the previous Rebbe said, that the reason why a Jew gets hungry for bread is because Neshama is hungry for the sparks of Gdusha, which aren't the, aren't the bread that you need to, need to elevate. That every Jew has sparks of tush he has to elevate. So if we would merit, we would feel our hurt, thirst for the godly spark. Instead, we just feel we're hungry for food. So in a similar way, regarding the fear of a Jew, from, of a non, why a Jew gets afraid of a non-Jew, the real reason for this is because he's afraid of his own sins. But his animal soul doesn't feel the sins. animal soul feels, I'm afraid of this non-Jew. And the Torah says, if you're afraid of a non-Jew, what should you do? You should go home. You shouldn't go out, you shouldn't go out, out to war. This is, um, by the way, there was mentioned parenthetically, um, it's possible that you're hungry and it's not your neshama thirsting for the godly sparks. It's possible that you're hungry for something which isn't kosher. Um, so that's obviously not a spark that you have to elevate. But if this is something which you need to live, the reason why you have that hunger for the thing that you need to live, that's coming from your neshama's Shem could challenge you also. You could feel you could feel you're hungry for something your body doesn't need. That's possible. You could, you could be challenged by your animal soul, and you could be confused in thinking that you're hungry for something which your body doesn't actually need. But <coughs> real hunger, 
<coughs> for the things that you do need, that's because your neshama is yearning for for um, for uh, the godly spark which is in the food. So why is it there is a fear of, of non-Jews? It's because of, uh, of, of the fear of your own inner sins. Um, okay, I think we should stop here. Bottom line is not to be afraid. Not to be afraid. Shem says we're chutzpahdik. We shouldn't be afraid. Um, I think I've been referring to Jews in Israel about <coughs> they're being afraid of giving away land and what the miracle will say and what the Arabs will say. And uh, they've been referring to <coughs> how the Knesset is, is trembling in the face of, of the big, uh, our uncle in, in Washington. And uh, Jews shouldn't be afraid. L'chaim.